Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name's Todd Sullivan, and with me as always is Oren Barter. Hello. And today we are looking at Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of A Clockwork Orange. How you doing, Oren? Pretty damn good. <laughs> good you? to hear. Good to hear. Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Uh, I've got. I think I've had this before um, from Whistler Whistler Brewing Company. It's a mighty mighty ninety pale ale. It's only ninety calories, two grams of carbs. So another one of those oh, low carb okay. beers. But it's um, it's a pale ale, and it's from Whistler Brewing, and it's um, it's quite nice. It's got a, a good pale ale flavor to it. Yeah, I think I remember you talking about that before. Yeah, they just started carrying it at my local cold beer and wine store, so I was excited to see that. Nice. I have a hair on my tongue. I don't know where that's from. <laughs> uh, what about you? Have you got anything in front of you that you're sipping tonight? Well, since I can't join you in Kamloops, I thought I'd represent Kamloops a little bit, and I'm having Squash Gordon. I've had this on the show before. It's from Red Collar Brewing. It's like a pumpkin ale. And it was cheap, and I'm assuming it was because they bought a lot of them for, like, Halloween. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Overstock. <laughs> yeah, you can sometimes find those things when they bring in something special for an event or, like, a holiday like that. So how wrong were we about this movie when we first started talking about the book? In what sense? In the sense that we were like, oh, yeah, it's like verbatim. Everything's spot on. Well, okay. So, I mean, there's things missing for sure. Yeah. Um, And things are rearranged. um, But, you know, I think the stuff that they, well, I I was speaking more of like the dialogue and especially Alex's kind of internal monologues in the film, those being more or less lifted from the book. And I do stand by the fact that probably most of them are, if not verbatim, then very close. No, okay, I will agree with that. But, like, it had been a very long time since I've seen that movie. I I must have been 12 or 13. And my recollection of the movie and watching it again, vastly different. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think I just, I think while I was reading the book, I was just like, because I could still picture his voice. I mean, yeah. I still hear his, and that, that's a pretty iconic, um, it's a very simple kind of voice, but it really kind of uh, made the character, I think. And I, I, you know what, I did exactly the same thing as you, is I heard it exactly in Alex's voice as well. Yeah. Or uh, Mc, McDowell? McDowell, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we talk about the movie itself, though, um, let's just take a second to talk about um, its its banning. Um, th- this is a rare case when you have both a book and a film that have each been banned or challenged independently. Um, and that's I don't think that's something you see a lot. And I, I think it would be interesting to see if that's ever happened before or since. 
Um, and it's also a rare case where, at least in Britain, uh, it was pulled from theaters by Warner Brothers at the request of Stanley Kubrick in 1973. Um, because it had been kind of connected to violent crimes that had taken place in the UK. Oh, really? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, there was... Uh, I'm trying to think what they were. I, I read it briefly on, on Wikipedia. There was one case where there was a rape. Someone was raped while the the perpetrator was singing, uh, singing in the rain, except they sang it as singing in the rape. Oh. Um, and there was one or two other things. I think someone had beaten up an old uh, drunk guy on the street um, and they had tried to connect it to the film. This was uh, Kubrick's comment uh, on those allegations that the film was sort of tied to the copycat violence. To try and fasten any responsibility on art as the cause of life seems to me to put the case the wrong way around. Art consists of reshaping life, but it does not create life nor cause life. Furthermore, to attribute powerful suggestive qualities to a film is at odds with the scientifically accepted view that, even after deep hypnosis in a post-hypnotic state, people cannot be made to do things which are at odds with their natures. Um, it was also banned uh, in Ireland in 1973. Okay. When did this movie come out? 1971, I believe. It's 71 or 72. Okay. I should have had that information in front of me, but I do not. That's okay. I obviously didn't even think to look it up. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, eventually, the film was passed uncut in Ireland on, in 1999 and released in the two, year 2000. Um, in Singapore, the film was banned for over 30 years before an attempt at release was made in 2006. Holy the ban was later lifted, and the film was shown uncut uh, on October 20, 2011. In South Africa, it was banned under the apartheid regime for 13 years. Then in 1984, it was released with one cut and only made available to people over the age of 21. Uh, it was banned in South Korea and in the Canadian provinces of Alberta and Nova Scotia. The Maritime Film Classification Board also reversed their ban eventually. Both jurisdictions now grant an R rating to the film. And in Brazil, the film was banned under the military dictatorship until 1978 when the film was released in a version with black polka dots covering the genitals and breasts of the actors in the nude scenes. So there you go. Uh, it's been banned a fair amount uh, and also pulled from distribution by Kubrick for a very long time. Although since his death, um, it has been, I believe, returned to cinemas in the UK. So you can watch it there again. Um, so, Yes. Let's talk about this movie and what's different and what's not different. Because that's what each scene is. It's either different or it's not different. <laughs> or it's not there. <laughs> or it's not there, which in a way is different. Um, yeah, the the beginning is very efficient. Um, they spare no time in getting into the ultraviolence. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously it opens with that... Um, incredibly iconic opening shot in the Corova Milk Bar with uh, Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, just staring right into your soul through the camera lens. With this creepy smile on his face. Yeah. Uh, and then the slow pullback of the camera as we sort of see the rest of his droogs. And we hear his opening narration which is cobbled from, I believe, you know, the opening chapter in the book. I'd kind of forgotten how small the Karova milk bar was. In the movie. At, 
and how sparsely attended it was. Yeah. Yeah, like I was picturing like it was going to be big, it was going to be full of people, but in the movie, yeah, it was just like one little hallway, basically, with Alex and his droogs and then one other table of people. And um, it, it looked like a set. And it was, it was, it's one of the few mm-hmm. sets. Most, most of the film is shot in location. Um, but it just, I don't know. It's, I guess partly because it's been such a long time since I saw the movie. Well, and like everything sh- on that set was handmade too. And it kind of had that look of handmade, like all the tables and stuff were like castings of women. Mm-hmm. And then all the writing on the wall was like in that sixties kind of style writing. Um, freeform though you could like see the the imperfections in the writing and yeah like everything was was just hard hard colors hard shapes and yeah like you say it was it was very obvious that it was a set but i also liked i did like the design of it I, I've, I've always sort of dug those those naked lady tables <laughs> um apparently that was there was a, a you know one of the designers or whatever went off on a weekend with a camera and and some models to take photographs of like as many different ways as he could think to contort the human body into something akin to a table. (laughs) um, I remember, you know, reading about that and how he said later that there, there weren't as, there weren't as many as you might think. (laughs) But yeah, from the milk bar, we, uh, we jump straight to the, uh, the homeless guy. There's no librarian. There's no librarian yet. Um, and I mean, skipping ahead to what else we don't see. There's no robbery of the, you know, the the corner store or whatever. Yeah. And there's no trip to the bar, at least on this day. Right. But we do get the scene um, with the the homeless guy, which I think plays out pretty similarly to the book. And again, I mean, I think that's another incredibly iconic scene of them entering the i don't know the tunnel or whatever with those long long shadows stretching out in front of them as they you know walk menacingly towards the old guy right um then again we jump from there right to billy boy in the um it was an old casino and they have their but it's a- their big fight well, there, that scene, oh, the scene with the woman, that scene was way too long. That was uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to, I think part of what makes that so uncomfortable is it was not only long, but it was just like one kind of wide shot that almost made it feel, to me, almost like you were watching um, a documentary about that. It didn't feel... Right, it like it wasn't, it wasn't it like, feel, yeah, it wasn't like cutting from this angle to this angle. Yeah, like expressions it was just like, on the faces. It was, know, the, yeah, it was just like, hey, this is, this is happening. It's like a guy across there had just stumbled upon the crime and like whipped out his camera to, to film it as it was happening. Yeah. I feel like that's a, that's the case in a lot of um, scenes in this film. This film has a, has a look and feel that almost borders on, um, like I said, documentary. To me, I can, I can see that. No, I can see that too. Um, so yeah, they have their they have their big fight. Uh, unlike the book, I think they ended up each one of them ends up with a dude on the ground that they're pummeling when they yeah. hear the police coming and make a break for it. 
Um, next thing we know, I think we see them driving in the car. Yeah, with the um, with the stare again. Alex driving the car. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, and all the rest of the droogs having a time whoop 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 and up as they drive. And can we talk about the makeup? Sure. Yeah, like I think that's pretty iconic too. Like, if if anybody wore that makeup, I think you would immediately think a Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Well, you mean like the I like mean, Alex the, fake, the like the fake eyelashes just on the, the fake one eyelashes. Eye. Yeah. And the droogs seem to have they don't have the fake eyelashes, but they do. It looks like they had like some kind of makeup around one of their eyes as well. Yeah, and didn't Pete? <laughs> it looked like he had shaved his eyebrows. Oh, I didn't he, notice that. Or was he just very? They have very blonde eyebrows. I couldn't see them. Like there was a couple of scenes where maybe not Pete. It was Georgie. Sorry. Yeah, I don't remember noticing that. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not there, but um, I was honestly surprised to find that um the uh, the old writer's home had the name home out front, just like in the book. I didn't remember that being there. Um, I didn't and, even notice uh, that. Yeah, it's when they pull up outside before they enter the the property. You can see it says it's at home in an oh, illuminated okay. light. Um, and then they sneak in. Um, it goes a little bit differently talking to the woman. Um, she actually unchains the door, and I think in the book Alex kicks yeah, the chain he kicks, off because he, he doesn't shut the door; she just leaves it chained. He's yeah, like, oh, to go back and idea. talk to the uh, her husband. Yeah, and then in this one too, the husband actually says to to let them in. That's part of it too. Yeah, that wasn't in the book at all. And then uh, we have, of course, the the assault on the writer who may or may not have been writing a book called A Clockwork Orange. We don't find out in the movie, um, but the. Um, the assault there is pretty horrifying. In part, I think, because of the um, the use of singing in the rain. See, and that that wasn't in the book at all, was it? No, I don't remember that. That at was all. absolutely yeah. not. That's that was actually um, improvised by Malcolm McDowell when uh, Kubrick was saying that the the scene was too dry. Oh, okay. And uh, but I think. Like it adds definitely some creepiness to the the scene, which is already pretty also, creepy. Yeah, yeah, but it also kind of shows the level of frivolity that these guys are treating their crimes with. They're not just committing those horrible crimes; like it's almost like to them, it's a big joke, right? Um, and then I think. We'll talk about it more when we get there, but when the song comes back around at the end of the film, I think that works much better than the way that scene does in the book. Really? No, I disagree. Really? I, I okay. felt I felt that that was almost lazy writing. Oh yeah, no. Okay, like, we'll talk about it when we get there, yeah, but I disagree. Okay. Um then when they're finished at the writer's place, they head back to the milk bar. Mm-hmm. We get the moment where um, the woman begins singing in between um, songs on the stereo, which I'd actually forgotten was in the movie. See, um, now, I remember that scene, but it, it felt weird. It just felt weird. Like, she, mm. she, like, the song stops, so she, like, pulls out the sheet music and, like, starts reading off the sheet music. 
Like if if you got like thirty seconds to sing, then you just sing from your gut, your heart. Like this is this is pretty. She's like, oh man, I've been waiting for this all day. I brought my sheet music just for this. I actually had the idea, and this is totally me filling in the blanks. But right. he he mentioned that those people were from like the networks, and mm-hmm. it got me thinking that like maybe they were talking about like a pitch for a TV show or a movie. And that that song was involved in the project that they were working on. And so she was showing off what the song was. Okay. That's a bit of a stretch, that's, but I, I, that's, <laughs> that's what my brain filled in for that moment. Okay. Um, honestly, um, I don't, there's, there's nothing in I, the film to indicate that that's what it is. I, there was absolutely nothing to indicate that. Nope. I, I think, I think that's went. your brain just giving uh, Kubrick, maybe just a bit too much credit. Kubrick, the, just a bit too much oh, yeah. credit, yeah. Um, and then he gives Dim the old flack um, when Dim uh, rudely interrupts the woman singing, and uh, Dim suggests that you know he might not like the way Alex is treating him. Maybe they gotta fight a little bit about it. And Alex is like, "Sure, I'll fight you anytime." And Dim kind of, I'm tired. Backs down yeah. on that. Yeah, maybe I just need a little. What did he say? Bedways? Bedways, I yeah. think. Something like that. Yeah. And so we, then we see Alex wander home um, to his, you know... It's it's interesting to see the, the, the world of the book kind of brought to life. Because definitely the, the kind of building the, that he goes home to feels very much in line with the way that, you know, the the world and the buildings were described in the book. Um, yeah, like everything uh, on his walk there, everything was kind of really, stuff was thrown about on the streets. Uh, Trash, really there was graffiti yeah, everywhere. And, it really didn't look like anybody was looking after anything. Um, yeah. The elevator was broken at his house, was- which, I mean, those doors were way too thin for elevator doors. Yeah. The thing about the elevator that when he stops to use it, I mean, it makes me think that it must have just broken that day. Um, Otherwise, Alex stops there every day in the hope that maybe it's (laughs) working this time. Or it was just too difficult to get that across without him actually fiddling with the elevator a little bit. I don't know. That elevator looked pretty bad even before he walked up. (laughs) That's true. It did. It looked like it had been bad for a long time. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I found found the... uh, I was really surprised by um, the art in all of these places. Um, it seemed kind of amateurish and very um, what's a, what's the good word for it? Very odd and sexual. It seemed like every I... piece of artwork hanging on any wall anywhere was just overtly sexual and hand painted hand painted in an afternoon. I had that note about the artwork being all very sexual, but then I thought about it afterwards. And I think it's just like Alex has a big, big sexual portrait in his room of the woman on her back, mm-hmm. the legs up in the air, spreading herself out. And then the cat woman had a bunch of erotic art as well. But I think that's that's pretty much it, except for like there was there's a big erection spray painted on one of the murals outside by a graffiti artist. But I don't remember there being like any sexual art inside of his parents' Part yeah, of I don't house. know about the, his parents' house, but the Corova Milk Bar had naked women tables. Oh yeah, but that's also like that's 
obviously their aesthetic, right? Like, as we see when they go back to the milk bar the second time, they actually deliver the milk through the nipples of the statues. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right? Tim goes and oh buys himself a milk at the he end of the night. He talks to the and, statue when he's, yeah, when he's pouring the milk. Yeah, like, I've, had a, hell, calls I've her, had a hell yeah. of a night, Stacy or whatever the fuck her name yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so he goes home, listens, slushies some tunes. Yeah, he has a snake. Yes, in the film. Yeah, that's I. I couldn't remember if that was in the book, but yeah, it was not. Uh, and then he's off to sleep. Uh, and he has oh right, he slushies his tunes, and uh, man, he gets a weird look on his face when he gets into music, and he's having his, I guess, his fantasy time. That's what that was. Because it happened at the end of the movie, too. And I was like, what is with this fucking look? On yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And then it was because it makes sense. Because it showed like as it, that look goes across his face and then it has these flashes of his like the woman being hung and him with vampire teeth and explosions mm. and mm-hmm. sort of like those are the fantasies going through his mind as he, you know, gradually falls asleep. And like 90% of his fantasies are him with vampire teeth. Mostly, yeah. Yeah, I was just like, flash to this, flash back to him with vampire teeth. Now this, now vampire teeth. He just really wants to be he a just, vampire, <laughs> right? Um, next thing you know, Alex's mother is uh, bubba banging on his door to get him up for school, but he's got a pain in the gulliver. Decides to stay See, home and, now, and I thought I remembered off. him like holding his stomach in the movie. We even talked about this. We both had that same memory. Well, you, you, you brought it up, and I said that could be why I had made the <laughs> oh, mistake okay. of... Of thinking it was his stomach. Yeah, I so clearly remembered him. And I can still remember him holding his, his stomach, but he doesn't even in the slightest. He's not even... He just lays in bed and he's like... He I just lays there, the yeah. Yeah. If I don't, if so, I don't rest now, I'm likely to miss more school. Exactly. Yeah, they haven't been to school all week. Yeah, well, if I don't get well, I'm going to miss even more. So those parents are definitely, definitely pushovers. Oh, yeah. His dad throughout um, the whole movie... Just tiptoeing around him, which is pretty yeah. pretty on point for the book. I gotta say, I did like yeah, I totally, did like his totally. rendition of of the father. Yeah, let's talk about the PR deltoid scene. Oh my fucking god! There was it was her. Anything that you liked about that scene? I I don't know what to say about that scene. <laughs> Such the, a weird scene. The dude, so first of all, it opens weird with like Alex walking down the hallway, scratching his ass through his underwear, walks past, I guess, his parents' room probably, and we catch a glimpse of somebody (laughs) in there as he walks by. It takes Alex a moment, stops, turns around, comes back, and and there's this fellow on the bed. The sweaty, awkward, nervous guy. But he's got this weird accent and a weird like vocal affectation where it's like, Good to see you, Alex. Yes. Oh, it was awful. And, it was and ending everything with yes, yes. <laughs> Pin in the Gulliver, is it? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, then the conversation does play out pretty much like it does in the book. The, the deltoid is there because he's worried about Alex, and you know he's there to remind him and us that the next time, you know, he kind of breaks the law, it's going to be you know to the the big boy prison, right? And yeah. Juvie. Yeah, well, Alex is um, like, you know, I haven't I haven't been in trouble with the cops for a while. Yes, you haven't been in trouble with the cops for a while. Yes, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly uh, what he, I'm saying, young Alex. He suddenly tries to punch him in the junk. Was it a punch or a grab? Like, what the 
It was. I, I felt like his fist was bald, but I could be wrong. Like he 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 makes Alex sit down beside him, then he knocks him down on the bed, lays down with him, and then yeah. smacks his junk. Smacks his junk, and is like, "What? What is happening?" <laughs> and then he drinks a glass that was on the table, and he drinks he drinks um, denture goo. That was a glass that someone's dentures were in. What the fuck? Uh, there's so much in this scene that I don't understand. <laughs> oh, but you know, there's probably um, there's probably critics out there who have written long, complicated essays about what this reveals about the true meaning of a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> right. It's. I mean, I think to an extent, maybe it's just there for comic relief. I don't know. I guess it- next we have Alex heading out. For the night, right? Does that sound right? Yeah, so he dresses up. Oh, no. Was this before or after the record store? Oh, yes. He goes to the record store. Right. Um, This is sort of where I might want to talk about the some of the design choices in this film. Um I think when you look back on a film this old, um, which I guess if it was, I said 71, that would make it like, that's 50, 50 years old this year. Holy crap. Yeah, you're right. Um, Anytime you look back on something that old, especially uh, something that tries to place itself into a future, it doesn't always work out because it's a future that you're you're building off of a modern aesthetic and that modern aesthetic does not necessarily always hang around into the future. Yeah. And there are things like like I think the the general look of Alex and the Droogs when they're out, you know, perpetrating crimes, like that's iconic and doesn't really look dated. It looks obviously unique to the world that they're in. But that's it. Mm-hmm. But then you have what Alex wears to the record store. Right, which, which, just, which looked like a house coat. A very 60s style long I don't think it was jacket. a house. It was more like a like a, a an overcoat, long purple yeah, it did, tailored it just overcoat. Kind of, yeah, it just kind of reminded me of that, like a big lavish house coat. Um and yeah, I think that's something that definitely like that's that's one of the the dated looks. It it screams mm-hmm. something from like the late 60s early 70s and, you know, the flamboyance of those periods and then trying to like make it even more flamboyant for this vision of a future. Um and even sort of like the I guess the hairstyles and the the costumes of the the two girls he picks up at the record store seem a little bit dated as well. Mhm. Um, but then, yeah, unlike the book, uh, he picks up these two clearly not 10-year-old uh, females, brings them back to his place, and has what appears to be consensual sex with both of them. A lot of consensual sex. In fast forward. In fast forward. I found it interesting that like throughout that scene, there's times where like one of the women gets up and gets dressed and you know looks like she's planning to leave, and then you know Alex gets up and woos them back to bed and out of their clothes again. And and if that, you know, if that was my, if I had to choose between that and going to school, I'm probably going to have a pain in my gulliver too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and then yeah, next 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 we have Alex heading out for another night of debauchery. That's right. Uh, and like in the book, his droogs are waiting for him outside his apartment. Kind of takes him by surprise. Dim is like pretending to drive a car. <laughs> is that what you thought he was doing? That's what he was doing. Yeah, he had like a bike tire in his hand, and he was like doing the shifter. He was totally driving a car. Oh, I missed that. I just saw him like kind of rocking in the baby carriage or whatever it was. Oh, no, no, no. He's like sitting in a chair. He had a bike tire for a steering wheel, and he was like pretending to shift the gears and driving real fast. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. And, and yeah, much like in the book, um, Georgie comes with a, you know, a plan to do something else and elevate their standing as criminals. And also they stand up to Alex, just like in the book. A little bit, yeah. Except I really liked how um, they had, like, George was talking to Alex, basically, and then Dim was just kind of, like, repeating what Alex was saying, or what George was saying. I like that. That's, I think that's a trait of Dim throughout the film. Um, uh, when they were raping the the writer's wife, Dim was frequently parroting part of the um, um, Singing in the Rain song. He kept saying, time for love, <laughs> time for love. Right. Um, so yeah, having Dim kind of repeat back what someone's saying is kind of a, um, a consistent character trait throughout the film. Although, it, again, it's an interesting one. So they head out and Alex isn't too impressed with uh, the way that they're kind of, you know, pushing back on his leadership. And so, and this is another, I think, like really, really iconic scene is that, you know, as they're walking by the waterway there in slow motion um, and Alex decides to like lash out at the, the droogs that tried to push back at him and conks uh, George right in the junk, kicks him into the water Flips uh, dim into the water. Yeah. Pete, much like Pete of the book, just tries to slip away and remain <laughs> unnoticed. Um, and then uh, you made a remark, I think, when you were, <laughs> Oren decided to like live tweet <laughs> his responses to the movies directly to me through Facebook Messenger. So um, I think you made a comment about this moment in your in your live yeah, messaging. So I me. don't, I didn't really remember this in the book. I thought that Dim got stabbed kind of in the heat of the moment. They were, they were actively fighting. Yes. Yeah. But in the, in the movie, Alex actually holds his hand out to, to help Dim get out of the water. And when Dim gives him his hand, trusts him to get him out of the water. That's when Alex takes his knife and cuts his hand, which I thought yeah. was much worse. Yeah. And there is like, you know, I mean, obviously, Malcolm Adal is the the iconic performance in this film, but there's such a great look of both shock and pain, pain and sudden distrust on the actor who plays Dim's face in that moment. Um, so yeah, kudos captured kudos captured guy. in slow motion as well. Yeah, no, captured was, in slow yeah. motion. That was a good scene. Um. And then we're next at the at the pub, having a few drinks to dull the the pain of everyone's wounds. Alex basically has everyone confirming that 
Everything has been restored to its, you know, rightful order of things. Uh, everyone seems to be in agreement. And now he wants to know about this, uh, this score that George wants to do, which takes us to the cat lady. Takes us to the cat lady and some um, very, very terrible art. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like the uh the the giant rocking penis i didn't like most of the art in this movie i really? have to say yeah there wasn't really a set that caught my eye and i was like wow that was you know that's interesting or well made or has a story to tell everything just seemed to be meant to be outrageous and of poor quality. I actually have a note here. Art outrageous and horrible quality. <laughs> wow, look at this. We got a bit of an art snob on our hands here. It just felt cheap. Um, I don't know. It felt a little cheap, I gotta say. I don't know, I didn't mind it. Okay. I, I dig erotic art, so Okay. Um So this plays out again pretty much, at least initially as it does in the book, with with them trying the same trick as the old guy. Or sorry, as on the on the writer. Knock yeah. on the door. We actually get to see her uh, make the phone call, though, in the movie. That is, yeah, I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. And um, it, the way that she explains her reason for doing it, because, you know, the attack or the, um, the, 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 the conversation she has with Alex at the door reminds her of a story that she read about the writer mm-hmm. from that morning's paper. Yeah. Which sort of tips her off. And also that's what sort of triggers the police to kind of rush out there once she calls because she's like, well, they're already gone or they're probably already gone because they're not. Right. Um, but obviously this in a car anyway. Meanwhile, Alex gets boosted up the side of her house to crawl in a window. Um, him arriving on her just as she hangs up the phone is a pretty creepy moment, actually. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, she hangs up the phone and then you she, you know, we see the door open at the far end of the room that she's in and Alex just kind of walk in and I don't know that just felt like such a, a moment of like she someone's just, privacy yeah broken like she just finished saying to the cops like oh they're probably gone yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um obviously the fight plays out a little bit differently um there's no cats attacking Alex which is too bad <laughs> That would have been fun to see. That would have been fun to see. And then he, the the interaction with the um, Beethoven bust was completely different. She grabs it and goes after him. Yeah, I don't think he even sees it. Yeah, he actually grabs the the rocking penis statue and that's what he beats her over the head with. Yeah, exactly. But I was a little disappointed that he wasn't interested in like reaching for the, the Beethoven bust and you know, fighting off cats and fighting off the woman and like, I want that Beethoven bust. And well, I see, it just seems, I don't want to say odd or disappointing, but it just, there's something seems wrong to have it there without some kind of acknowledgement from Alex about it. Like, I mean, obviously it, we see it, but well, and what and is it? Especially because it plays such a big factor later on in the movie, right? His love for Beethoven. Yeah. And has he really brought it up other than when he hits Dim at the milk bar when the Petitza is singing? Like, it just, feel, really, it just no. feels like it was kind of, un- that aspect of Alex was kind of underplayed in the movie. And then it becomes such a big deal later on. Yeah. It I just think doesn't feel like it was one of the yeah. odd things for me is I remembered it being, you know, his love of Beethoven being a bigger deal in the movie. Um, and it does seem more or less downplayed. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, they get in a bit of a fight. She ends up on the ground. He clocks her in the face with a giant penis. And uh, is that a sentence runs. you ever thought you would ever say in your life? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> um, heads out the front door where his droogs are waiting for him to. Smash him in the face with a bottle of, I guess, milk to go from the Corova milk bar. I guess so. What did he, what, how did it happen in the book? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, Dim used his chain to hit him in the face and then he tied him, him up. in the face. Yeah. Well, no, they didn't tie him up. They just left him there. Oh, I thought they tied him up. Okay. But he was blinded by right. the, um, the hit in the face by the chain. And then, you know, he just couldn't get anywhere before the police got there. Right. And it's the same thing here. He's blinded, I guess, by the milk. I mean, don't get, don't get synth, synth mask into your eyes. Apparently it blinds you. Mm-hmm. The more you know. And then he's off to... Off to jail. Prison. Which is something unique in the film... <laughs> Is getting the opportunity to see his arrival in jail. We don't immediately leap two years ahead. We see him show up and, you know, his first few moments dealing with mm. the no, I want to talk. I wanna, jail. Be- before we do that, I want to talk about... Um, just oh, right. Gets, I did jump again. Gotta, he yeah. Gets, yeah. Gets brought in, gets arrested, interrogated. But he doesn't sing like a canary um, like he did in the book. Like he's a bit more no. stoic. He's too... I, I felt like... I, I missed that aspect in the movie. I thought that that was better played out in the book. Yeah. And like, even when he gets spit on, he doesn't say like, oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Right. Like he just kind of gives a smirk. Yeah. It's definitely two different choices on how to characterize that, that character of Alex. Right. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, you know, he's in, he's being interrogated. He's not saying anything. Um, you know, one one cop is like pushing on his slash nose, so he grabs that cop in the junk. Deltoid shows up, gets invited into the interrogation room, and like um, after the first encounter with Deltoid, when he came, I was like, "How the fuck is this gonna go?" Right? <laughs> like, what what am I about to watch? Uh, nothing really weird happened. No, here, it wasn't it, nearly. It as, was pretty yeah, much like just that one scene was just so fucking yeah. weird. The cops are like, if you want to take a jab at him, you go ahead. And Deltoid chooses to just spit on him instead. And Which Alex is, just, yeah, the book, yeah. Yeah, just wipes his... Doesn't even wipe it all off. He just wipes his mouth. Mm, there's another thing uh, that's different here. Deltoid actually tells Alex that the woman died, which... That's right. ...is different. In the in the book, I believe he comes to that realization on his own when yep. he understands that he's like really facing some serious charges. And again, I think, you know... We can talk more about specific changes when we get to the end. Yeah. But like I think for the most part, all of these decisions, all of these changes have been about just speeding things up mm-hmm. and which, being more efficient. Yeah, which we we came across in um, the autobiography of Malcolm X as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything that's added to our understanding of Alex. You know, if we'd had. The scene where he robs the store, or yeah, the scene I, yeah. where I can see why, like that doesn't really. I mean, they could have drug on the whole night of debauchery, but he, they got the point across with the stories that yeah. they did tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so now, now we're at Alex arriving in prison. Um, 
signing in, um, turning over his clothes, turning over his belongings. Um, getting a flashlight up the butt. Getting a flashlight up the butt. I <laughs> I do remember always being entertained by the character of that yeah. prison guard <laughs> who was always yelling at him. And super enthusiastic in his salutes. I've always found that character entertaining in this film. Um, just so he seems to be over the top. Just so over the top. And like, especially when he's interacting with like other guards or other prison administrators who don't have his same level of <laughs> commitment anything. to the role. Yeah, yeah and exactly. He just doesn't care. He's still bringing it all the way. <laughs> And then uh, I love that Alex actually eventually mocks him. Yeah. He just gives him the exact same salute back. Um, yeah, we get into the point where he gets chosen for the Ludovico technique. Yeah, so um, next we see him. He's working with the um, the, the the chaplain or whatever, the, the prison mm-hmm. priest. Right, he's, um, he's enjoying all the bad things in the Bible. That's right. Yeah. Um, so he talks to the the chaplain and is like, you know, I've heard about this new technique. Can you get me in for that? Um, and the chaplain pretty much just suggests he kind of pray for it, I guess. Um, and then not long after, I guess maybe the next scene is when we see the the minister of the interior or inferior, or inferior as yeah. Alex called him in the book, um, arrive to look for... Um, Someone to to take into the Ludovico technique. We see him stop at Alex's room and have, not his room, his cell, where he's got this interesting, he's got like nudie pictures on his wall, and then also like a crucifix, and then also like a photo and a bust of Beethoven. And I don't know if I remember this. I was having troubles with the with the movie around this this time, so I think oh, I okay. might have missed this part. Um, yeah, it's basically the guard is just walking down uh, along the hall of the prison before he goes out to the, the, the prison yard while the prisoners are. And he stops at this one cell and he walks in and looks around. It's obviously Alex's because he's got all this stuff, the, the bust of Beethoven and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he does stop and he actually stops and looks at the bust of Beethoven and then at the photo of Beethoven that Alex has on a shelf. And I don't know if that's meant to imply that like he was already leaning towards the person in this cell as part of the, you know, his reasoning for choosing him for the Ludovico technique or, or what, you know, what that scene was sort of meant to portray. Maybe it was meant to portray Alex's love for Beethoven because we were complaining that it wasn't as big of a deal in the movie as it should have been. So maybe Kubrick was like, yeah, we need to like, make sure that later on in this movie, people understand where this is coming Mm. from. Maybe. I never saw it, so um, I shouldn't even be talking. About it. <laughs> there you go. You never saw it. I maybe just made up a scene that isn't there. I just maybe got you, you didn't to talk about like... it. Um, the guy comes out to the prison yard. Everybody lines up. Um, starts doing this talk about how uh, they need to start clearing out prisons to be used for like political enemies uh, or political prisoners, um, and so criminals need to be um, just what was the word he used. Um, cured basically, right? Um, because 
you know, keeping criminals together with other criminals is just breeding for their criminality because they just enjoy it so much. And Alex basically pipes up and says, yes, you're right. Um, the shouty guard is like, you shut your mouth. <laughs> um, but Alex is, you know, um, is, is, uh, the fact that he jumped in and spoke up seems to impress the minister of the interior. And he's like, this, this is what we're looking for. This guy right here. We'll bring him in to the Ludovico technique. Um, and then Alex gets brought in front of the, the prison warden, I think. Right. Um, so yeah, Alex signs himself over to the Ludovico technique, agrees to have his sentence committed to whatever the technique is. Yep. Um, although I did think it was interesting because, you know, I mentioned when we were talking about this part of the book that, um, you know, Alex signed himself over that anyone there to like, uh, help him understand the, the legality of the contract he was signing. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was an interesting thing that, like, Alex does briefly try to read the contract. And they tell him, no, don't read it. And the guard's like, don't read that, just sign it. (laughs) It's it's interesting that Alex was at least wise enough to maybe try to have some understanding, but not wise enough to fight for that understanding. (laughs) Right. Uh, I guess shipped off to uh, where they're going to do the Ludovico technique. Um, We see him in his room there having a lovely, lovely, lovely lunch. (laughs) Um, nurse comes in to sort of tell him what's going to happen, and he gets he gets his first injection of serum one fourteen. Right, and the one fourteen I love that was like written in pen or like it was different than the label. It's like they made these labels. They're like, we're going to go through so many of these, we're just going to have these right. Labels. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice. Um, and then Alice gets a shot in the butt. Different location in the movie. I seem to recall it going in his arm in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he is brought to the, the theater. See, and now and I, I didn't really picture this happening in a theater. Right. So it was interesting to see. Like, I was like, oh, okay. He's, he's videoing the cinemas in the cinema. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't know if I saw it as in a theater theater when i was reading the book Mm -hmm. i did see it as kind of like having seats like in a theater but i was thinking of it more like in a um, like in a university classroom setting where you have that kind of like the the amphitheater the the stacked seats going up and maybe you would have an actual physical projector at the top that was shining down onto something below not like behind like in the projector room, like in a proper theater, right. sort of what I was picturing. Yeah. Um, I think you said something about the the device used to hold his eyes open. Oh, looked terrible. it looked horrible. Yeah, and like that was actually like that was in his eyes. Like that yes. must have been absolutely. And then we just kept dropping those drops into his eyes. Yeah, like that must have been an incredibly uncomfortable scene to act. Yeah, and so a couple of fun bits of trivia about that scene. <laughs> okay. Um, the guy who put the clamps in his eyes and were he was doing the eye drops was an actual doctor who was on set to make sure that nothing bad happened to Malcolm McDowell's eyes. Oh, okay. Um, however, in spite of that, he did end up with a scratched cornea from that scene. 
Yeah, I was looking. I was like watching his eyes move around, and I was like, "Man, he's like that's gonna scratch." Like that's exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking. Like that's got to scratch. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um. And then, unlike the book, we we get a really condensed version of the Ludovico technique. It goes on much much longer in the book. Yeah. We only really see it happening twice, and it's only in the second time that they introduce. Uh, music with the films and specifically Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and we later find out, different from the book, that Alex is not conditioned against all music, but just specifically the Ninth Symphony, right? Which is his favorite. And that's—I don't know how I feel about that change. I, I feel like it's well. Here's the thing: if he was averse to all music. The scene later on when he's re-singing Singing in the Rain. Oh. Yeah. I, Good point. Yeah, that's... I, I'm singing it. <laughs> exactly. It wouldn't have had the same effect. And I think that's one of the reasons... Yeah. One of the reasons I didn't really like that scene too much. Because right, I felt like they took... They stripped away a part of the, the book. Um, not just to speed things along, but to make um make a rewrite work but i've been known to be Um, a little too critical so after you know (laughs) so obviously we have you know we we get a chance to see him going through two of these treatments obviously there's a lot more um but next time we see alex he's ready to be showcased in front of a room full of people to show how he has been taught to not to be bad anymore uh, and these scenes again play out pretty much like they did in the book. Now, in the in the book, the guy when he licks his boot, I thought that was Alex's idea, not the guy's idea. It was, yeah, it okay, was Alex's okay. idea. But everything else seemed pretty much on point. Um, I yeah. didn't really see. Actually, I missed a part of this uh, too because the pizza arrived. Um, <laughs> so I missed. I, we we saw the we saw the boobs, and then I had to go get the pizza. And then when I came back, there was no more boobs. So I don't know what happened between there and the no boobs, but. Oh, basically, he just, you know, he starts, you know, thinking about having her, and then he sort of falls down on his knees, retching, and, right. um, you know, there's a moment of him kind of, like, on his knees, struggling with his desire for her, like, looking up, trying to reach for her breasts, and he can't, he's overwhelmed, and sort of collapses on the ground. Does and then, he say all the things, like, I want to protect you, I want to be your knight in shining, does he say all those things? No, oh, okay. I don't think so. Okay. I think it's all pretty internal. Okay. Um, and then Alex is, he's a free man, is a free man. I think we cut to him like arriving at his parents' place pretty much. Don't we? I think so. Yeah. So, um, Alex is a free man. He pretty much arrives on his parents' doorstep, popping open the door, walking in. We find his parents at home with Joe and they're all reading about Alex's release in the newspaper. So, we don't get that whole kind of shock to see him moment that we do in the book. Right. But they are still kind of awkward about the whole, hey, son, you don't really have a room thing. And by yeah. the way, this is this is Joe, our new son. <laughs> no, I get um, Yeah, it's, it's Joe that calls him the son, but. Yeah. Yeah. And then he does his old, like, melodramatic like i'll just leave nobody wants me here anyway yeah i guess i'll just be on me 
Mia owned or whatever it is. Mia Adi Nadi. Mia Adi Naki. Adi Naki, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so he has a nice little mournful walk by the water. <laughs> um, but then he gets beat and up. I think, <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think briefly when he's looking out on the bridge and on the water, I think they don't articulate it, but I think he's thinking about killing himself at that point. Oh, okay. I think he's looking at that bridge thinking about jumping off of it. And I think that's what we're meant to take away from that. Right. Uh, but then, yeah, the uh, the old the old wino he beat the crap out of at the beginning of the movie <laughs> comes out for asking some money, for money and then he's like, "I remember you. That's yeah. the bugger that did it." And then, where did all those old people come from? I oh, like, <laughs> he, I think he, Alex or um, the old guy drags Alex into the the underpass that oh, he was in before. Okay, okay, and they're all sleeping under there. Gotcha. Um, so the yeah the rise of the librarians has been replaced by the the lies of the rise of the hobos, um, and again I think this is just this is just super efficiency really yeah um, and it's smart there's it you don't need to have the library guy you don't need to have that visit to the library this you can have the same thing happen with the well the, but the visit with the library was also like he was looking for a way to kill himself so it really rang home that desire for but like you say maybe the looking over the bridge was kind of his way of bridging that right yeah uh-huh. and i don't know bridging that get it yeah <laughs> i don't know how important it is to the story that we we understand that alex is thinking about killing himself at this point okay that's fair um then the police arrive to right. you know take care of the um the hobo now Okay, it was Dim, and then it was... Um, Georgie. It was Georgie. Yeah it, yeah, it was Billy Boy in the book, but it was Georgie. It was Billy Boy in the book. And again, I think this is probably a better use of characters. Yeah. Um, Georgie, we learn um, partway into uh, Alex's sentence that Georgie was killed while assaulting a home. But in the in the movie, Georgie's alive and well and beats the living piss out of Alex. They proceed to like drown him. Dude, in a... that scene was so long. I know. Like, did he have a breathing apparatus under that thing? Like, I was wondering about that myself. Like, um, I thought they were actually going to had... kill him, and then like the next scene was going to be like a different actor because they fucking killed. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm McDowell. Um, yeah, I wondered if there was like a breathing apparatus in there or whether or not he ha- must have had maybe some kind of a hand signal or something to like notify. If- His hands were tied. Yeah, they could be fake movie handcuffs that you can release if you need okay, to. Okay, that's true. That's true. But yeah, like that was... It, it went on for a long time though, for sure. It was scary. Like I was I was actually like and <laughs> physically Again, scared. that's another one of those scenes that was like a single one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't cut away at all. Um, Man, they put him through hell for this movie. And then they leave him out there in the middle of nowhere. Yep. Uh, much like the book, he staggers off to eventually stumble upon to the, find home. the writer's house. Yep. yep. Um, little bit different here. The writer is no longer a solitary um, person in his house. He seems to have... Um, Brought in maybe a bodyguard, someone to keep him safe yeah. after the... Yeah, that, I made a note of that. I think that he hired him to keep him safe. But also, do you know who this is? Yes, I do. Nice. David Prowse. This is Darth Vader. Your yeah, daughter's best known for, favorite character. Yeah, well, the, the Darth Vader's body. Well, yeah. 
Um, I love that shot when we first see the inside of the 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 house after the doorbell ring because yeah, it's, it's a flash. It's, it's a, it's shot a back, mirror. Yeah, to the to the earlier scene. Yeah, I like. Yes, that too. but so quickly you learn so much because as it pans from the desk. Uh, and you start to see more of the writer behind the desk. We can see that he's in a wheelchair now. He mm-hmm. wasn't before. Yeah. Uh, and then we get over to where the wife was, except there's no wife there. It's this massive bodybuilder, later uh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, well, you could hear uh, that the whole time. And I was like, what is that? What am I? What, like, what are we padding to right now? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um. And so uh, Darth Vader goes and opens the door. <laughs> Let's Alex just call him just, Darth Vader from, for the rest sure. of the podcast. Um, Alex collapses into the home because he's just kind of passed out on the door. Yeah. Uh, Darth Vader picks him up and, <laughs> and brings him in to the, the home. He's like, I think this guy uh, needs some help. Oh, and yeah, um, he actually has some speaking lines that made it into the final cut in this movie. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and so, uh, I can't remember if Alex starts talking right away, but the the writer, much like in the book, recognizes him as the 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 kid from the Ludovico technique, mm-hmm. and wants to use him to help his attempts to sort of damage the reputation of the government. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Darth Vader goes and runs a bath for Alex because he's cold. And uh, and then Alex ends up in the bath while the the man is on the phone making arrangements for his friends to come over so they can you know figure out how they're going to utilize uh, having Alex in their possession in order to again damage the government's reputation. Right, which is the same as the book. Yeah. Yeah. But when he gets off the phone, he notices that Alex is uh, singing oh. singing in the rain while he's in the bath. Before before we get to him getting off the phone, um, oh, yes. great line, the thin end of the wedge. I made a note of yeah, that. Yeah, you like that in the book. I yeah. love that line. That is such a great line. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad that it made it into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, yeah. So he hangs up the phone. Alex is singing... Um, singing in the rain and this is where i made the note like i thought music made him sick and then that's when i realized it was just the one and then that's when i realized why they made that choice and that's when i kind of started to hate it a little bit (laughs) see i think i think this is a better more natural reveal of who alex is um i think it's it it feels really forced it would have it would have taken yeah it would have taken way too long in the movie to do all those subtle little you know because the writer learns it slowly, slowly, slowly. Slowly, yeah. Just from little, you know, misphrases, and from, you know, he assumes the writer doesn't have a phone because they claimed he didn't have a phone when he was first there, and right. Just these gradual things, and to have one single jaw-dropping, oh my god, that's who this is moment. I think works a lot better. Yeah, but I mean, let's remember, Alex isn't a complete idiot. He wouldn't have sung the same song that he's saying like it just it it seemed a little bit like we just need to make this happen to me personally mm. that's how i felt about it i felt like yeah. it was just maybe a little too on the nose i don't know i liked it okay that's fair um, you're entitled to your opinion even if it's wrong i know right <laughs> no i'm just joking um and so 
when uh, when Alex is out of the bath. Right. Well, so we know now that um, F. Alexander, the writer, now knows who Alex is. Yeah. And so when Alex is out of the bath, uh, he's got a plate of spaghetti waiting for him. The sound starts eating. Um, a few minutes later, Darth Vader brings the writer in into the wheelchair, brings him down to the lower level, sets him down. Um, I gotta say, the writer is not keeping his cool here uh, with Alex. No. <laughs> Try the wine! Uh, he's probably can't control the rage that he feels. Mm-hmm. You know, not all of us could, like, bundle that i mean let's look at it like he's lost his legs he lost his wife mm-hmm. um how many people would be able to like confront the person that did that to them in a calm and rational way no absolutely um, yeah and i think the fact that his performance goes in that way it leads alex to those feelings of like, Alex is gradually becoming more and more nervous, especially as he's yeah, offered the wine. He doesn't want to drink the wine, yeah. He doesn't want to drink the wine. No one's drinking the wine with him, and he keeps, like, delaying it for as long as possible. Oh, ooh, lovely color. Um, <laughs> lovely bouquet, yeah. Lovely bouquet. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he thinks that the guy's, you know, because, of course, he recognizes the guy by now. Yeah. Um, well, and no, he, yeah, he glasses. knew right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the writer's friends show up. Right. And, and then when they uh, walked in, I said, I made a note, there's the singer from the Milk Bar. And then I saw her in a different angle and I said, wait, maybe not. And I, do all do all British people look the same? <laughs> <laughs> That's racist. Is it though? I guess it is a little bit. No, like when I first saw her, I was like, ah, oh, it's the woman from the milk bar. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> no. Um, and so they ask him some questions about his experience, particularly about music uh, and how he was conditioned against music. And he corrects them by saying he was just conditioned uh, to react to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, and then he passes out in his place, plate of spaghetti. Yes. Which is a moment that I had forgotten about. Um and a nice sort of uh, twist, reverse twists kind of thing, because obviously his paranoia about the wine is supposed to make us think maybe he's being paranoid about the wine. And then when the other people show up and everything seems to be fine, we kind of forget about the wine thing. And then when he passes out, we're <laughs> like, oh, I guess there was something in the wine after all. <sighs> and I like just how, like, as soon as he did that, you know, she flipped her her little notebook shut and the other guy says uh good job f or whatever they said and yeah you know because they were both in on what he was planning to do here yeah and just playing their part until such time as alex see and now uh, succumb to the wine now because when he was talking on the phone he was very sincere about like you know we can really use this this kid this kid's been done wrong like he didn't understand before he heard his voice so yeah. I'm wondering, like, it almost feels like they had this planned regardless of whether or not he hated Alex. That's an interesting take. Um, I, I think it's entirely possible to to perceive a, a revised phone call. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. in the same way that, like, in the book, we don't ever see 
the the writer and his comrades gather to decide to torture Alex to death. Mm-hmm. But I think you can f- safely assume that that was not their plan from the start. Okay. Okay. Right? When they just thought he was the guy who had been taken advantage of by the government and mm-hmm. given this Ludovico technique, they obviously wanted to do something. Um, but I don't think it was like torturing him to the point of suicide. It could be wrong. Okay. okay. It could be that, you know, that there's no, that there is no good side here. There's, you know, the government is terrible. The people trying to bring down the government are terrible. Alex, Alex and his drugs are terrible. Yeah. Everybody is terrible. <laughs> Except for Joe. Joe is the one terrible, not terrible person in this book. Joe? Who's Joe? Joe. He's the guy living at Alex's room. Yeah, he's kind of a douche. Really? You think so? Yeah. I think, uh, uh, what was his name? Sorry. I forget his name. David Prowler? Deltoid? No, Deltoid was a piece of shit. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. No, no, What the, the, uh... The chaplain. No, why didn't I write his name down? I don't remember it now. Prowse. David Prowse? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his his character. Oh, him. Yeah, he was, his he character. Was, he was a decent, decent guy. <laughs> Sorry, are we digressing? Those were some. Again? Those were some short shorts on here. Oh, though. dude, I was like, that was like a fucking thong, right? Yeah, and that guy, that nice dude had a little... dump truck of an ass too. <laughs> right, <laughs> butt cheeks just <laughs> hanging out there. Um, and um, then okay, and then we get um, I want to talk about that tableau. Because that was, I think, my favorite part of the movie. Okay. Um, when they're panning or like bringing the camera back, they've got the bodyguard dressed in a suit, leaning up. So yeah, first, first Alex wakes up right. in okay, a new place. Sorry. Um, on a bed with um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony playing redonkulously loud. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut to, I think, what we're supposed to assume is a floor below to find um, the writer and uh, the rest of his crew down there. They've got, like, these massive speakers pointed towards the ceiling, and they're just trying to make Alex's little life miserable. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that shot there. Oh, then. that shot. It was That was a beautiful shot. Um, just the way that everything was framed, the position of everybody... Um, what they were wearing, how, like their facial expressions. Um, it was just like, I, I just, I thought it was a great, great scene. And not only, yeah. not only just the, the positions of everything, but then also that slow pan out and just kind of getting a broader view of everything. That was by yeah, far and how my like each, scene. each little moment was gradually revealing more about what's going on there. Like, yeah. In a, in, a, in a perfectly timed way, like starting just with the writer looking up, that kind of look of mad glee on his face as he mm-hmm. imagines as Alex being tortured. And then, you know, next we see uh, the bodyguard next to him. Yeah, and he's just kind and of then, like, he's just sitting there. He's like, you know, he's just there kind of patient mm-hmm. with the writer. Um, and then his one helper is is standing on the other side of the fireplace um, and kind of like, sort of somewhere in between i think emotionally between the bodyguard and the writer and then the other guy is just kind of doing his own thing playing with the <laughs> with the with the, the uh, pool balls because everything's happening on a on a pool table apparently yeah um yeah 
no, I, I thought that was a great scene. Very well done. Lighting. Um, everything. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, much like in the book, Alex eventually decides he can't take it anymore and does a big leap out the window. Um, and does not die. Uh, does not die. Um, they had a... what the, the shot for, like, as... From Alex's POV falling towards the ground. Mm-hmm. I guess they came up with, like, a, a rig that they could put the camera inside and they literally threw the camera out the window. <laughs> um, and they were able to do it... They were able to get five takes, I think, before uh, it was damaged. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. That was a good. That was a good shot too. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Cut to Alex. Very much in a hospital in this this yes, version. Yes, very much of, in a hospital. No doubt yeah. about it. No argument there. Which again is probably what informed my assumption that he was in a hospital in the book. You're still wrong, but I well I, <laughs> I admitted that it was probably some kind of a government facility. Um. And so he's the, the, the moment when he wakes up, and there's there's a nurse and a doctor <laughs> banging right. in the next yeah, well, he makes area. Yeah, groans in pain. He's like, oh, and then he hears, and then oh. <laughs> oh. that's a, that's a funny, funny scene. And it's another one of those kind of moments that seems to kind of come out of nowhere in this movie. But um, I, I I like that better than the the deltoid crotch grab that. That yeah, was that was. Just... <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I like that. That was that was that was good fun. That was funny. Um. So Alex wakes up after some time. Um, Feels like a million years. He says. Yeah. The uh, a psychiatrist comes to see him. I guess the parents come to see him first. And. Uh, He's a bit abusive to them, but I don't think they have as much of a conversation as they did in the book. No. No, he's not nearly um, as rude to them in the movie as he was in the book. Yeah. Uh, and then this like, uh, psychiatrist shows up. He asks her about... These dreams uh, that he was having, yeah. Yeah, that they were messing around with his head, which you know I think is the... The books or the film's version of implying that he got brain surgery. Yeah. Um, even though, man, he's got a healthy head of hair there. Um, (laughs) they didn't, it doesn't seem like they bothered to shave that head before brain surgery, but, um, I think that's definitely supposed to be the, uh, the film's shortcut explanation of the brain surgery. Um, she does a little test with these little, uh, flashcards where he has to like come up with what the other people are saying in the conversation. Um, the first couple of responses he gives just seem to be so fucking weird, crazy, meaningless gibberish. Yeah. And I remember early, early, early times that I had seen this film, I took that to mean that like his brain was damaged to the point where he, he can't kind of make meaningful sentences anymore. Um, I think more like it was maybe just him, testing her to see if he can get away with saying like literally anything. Right. Cause that's what she said. Like just whatever, whatever comes to mind. Cabbage. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then as it progresses, they get to be more, um, I guess more pertaining to 
the pictures, but also they start to get. I, I like the one about the guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the ladder, peeking his head into the window. No time for the old in and out, miss. I'm just here to check your meter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think that's that's their again much like the flashcards in the book this is their way of trying to see whether they've managed to reverse the Ludovico technique Um, and then we have the minister of the interior show up Um, dude his fucking shirt was mint oh I don't really remember it I'll have to google that it was like this gorgeous golden shiny and then he had like a gold tie with a black suit. I want that hmm. shirt so bad. Nice. Yeah. Um, I feel like their conversation spells things out a bit more than it did in the book. Yeah, I think so. Um, As far as like, we're friends. You're not going to say anything bad about your friends who have saved you and who have made the, the bad writer who tried to kill you disappear from the face of the earth um and we're gonna give you a good job and and we're gonna give you a good job and and good money now was that in the book because it almost makes me feel like maybe kubrick did read that last chapter but chose to go with the original um i mean i think there was talk about yeah the government giving him a job they didn't talk specifically about what it was until the last chapter okay okay but it's also possible like i do know that you know, before they were finished making the film, um, Kubrick became aware of the final chapter and may have read it and obviously could have made modifications to the script to include things that he read about in that final chapter, too. Because okay. obviously things were changed. Like the script must have been changed after shooting began if the Singing in the Rain was improvised by Malcolm McDowell, because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to add that to the... right. The scene later, right? Yeah. Um, and then they bring Alex in uh, a present, which is like these massive speakers. Oh, but before that, the minister of the interior is like hand feeding him. Oh, yeah. Steak. And I just love how he kept smacking his lips open every time he wanted to bite. He was like, oh, yeah. Give me a bite. Uh, I actually like yeah. that. That scene was kind of funny. Alex was so like had that guy in the palm of his hand through that whole scene. Like he knows yeah. that. Yeah. I got your balls. I got your, your blockos. Your yarbles are your in my yarbles. palms. Yeah. Um, sorry. And then brings in the gift of music and flowers and photographers. Yeah. That's just, that's the photo moment of, <laughs> for the papers, right? The, you know, minister of the interior shaking hands with Alex. Like we're friends now. All uh, all hard feelings are lost. The fact that we broke his brain and then had to cut it open to fix it. Uh, no big deal. <laughs> Lessons were learned. Uh, everything's fine. And that was the end. That was the end. He hears the music. He goes into his special place and... Oh, right. The weird face decides, again. <laughs> fantasizes himself fucking some girl in the snow while a bunch of men in suits stand around applauding them. <laughs> That's a common fantasy of mine, so I can relate. For real? No. Okay. Um, and that was the end. Yeah, I was cured. All right. That was uh, that was Sonic Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, which um, I think is still, despite 
you know, maybe some of the the dated set elements and some of the dated costume elements. It's still a pretty effective film. It's still pretty uh, dark and shocking. Shocking. It's definitely shocking. Yeah. Um, blood, blood color in the seventies is just too red. Okay. I don't mean like people bled a different color in the seventies. <laughs> I mean, what there they, was just too much fucking oxygen in the atmosphere. What they what the they 70s. used for like fake blood in the seventies is just too red. And I don't know. Maybe that had something to do with the the code, the MPAA code, as far as like you can't have blood look too real. Um, I don't know, but that's that does that does bother me when I see blood. <laughs> um, and sometimes, like you know, even from the eighties and. You know, you see movies that have like really, really bad foley for like people getting punched. Right. Um, this didn't seem too bad for that. All of the sound effects seemed pretty good. Um, it was interesting, like especially when he was getting beat when he was being drowned in that tub. How it wasn't really a sound effect; they just had the music kind of get louder at those moments. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. 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 God, that scene was st- that scene's still gonna. That was hard to watch. Mm-hmm. There was a few scenes in this movie that were very hard to watch. Uh, it is still a favorite of mine. I am a fan of Stanley Kubrick. Um, I don't know if I'd put this in my top, my top four or five Kubricks, though. Maybe. Okay. I definitely um, remembered it very, very different. Um, I think I watched it through the lens of youth, and yeah. it, um, thinking about how young I was when I watched it, I'm very shocked that uh, nobody was here to tell me <laughs> to shut this off. Um, mm. But I definitely, I don't think I really understood a lot of what was happening when I watched yeah. it the first time. Um, I just, I kind of remember, um, I thought the makeup was interesting. I thought the way that he talked was interesting. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I, yeah, I didn't really understand. But I did this time around. And it was uh, a much more of an intense experience for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your final thoughts? Um, it's a good movie. It's a classic. Um, I don't think, um, I, I think I can understand why some places balked, you know, at a film like this. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a difficult subject, but you know, it, it's not, it's not a story that you could tell if it was in any way toned down. You know, it doesn't it doesn't work to to have, you know, unless Alex is that, you know, the the pinnacle of criminal, mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense for him to be the one who goes through the Ludovico technique. And and if the he's Ludovico not, technique wasn't so extreme, there would be no way to release him into the public or no reason to put him through that. And yeah, yeah, like it is like we and like we spoke about it earlier it's a it was a book of extremes and it was definitely a movie of extremes as well and again like it's a it's a book about the um, you know the 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 need to be able to choose Mm -hmm. whether you're going to do good or evil um and i think unless you have someone who was first choosing to do great evil 
um, the, having that, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I had an ending place for that thought. That's okay. But I think, I don't think the story works unless it's, it's in the extreme. I agree. I agree. Um, so there we go. Uh, fantastic adaptation though. I think it's worth noting that it, it it's obviously there are differences and, and there are things, more things missing, I think, than changed, but uh, there were some changes made as well due in part, I think to sometimes to what's missing, but on the whole, uh, pretty faithful, keeps most of the scenes, uh, lifts a lot of the monologue, I think, straight from the book. And, uh, yeah. And some great iconic imagery. Totally. Uh, are we going to give it a, a star rating? Or are we doing that on the live episode? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to give the film four stars. Four stars? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give it three yarbles. Out of five. Three yarbles. Yeah. Three yarblockos. <laughs> What's the star to yarble exchange rate? Uh, one to one. Okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got to check these things. They may not yeah, be. Absolutely. Uh, all right. That's going to bring us to a close. Um, uh, I don't know how long this episode is going to be, but it's it's going long as we record. So <laughs> is, yeah. we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um Next up will be our uh, live episode uh, that will be on Sunday, January 7th. No. No, February 7th. <laughs> January 7th will be going backwards. In so time. we will be doing the live episode next year. Next year. January 7th, 2022. We're just going to take a little breather before we do the live episode. We just want to let everything soak in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got to really absorb the book and, and reflect on our thoughts about it before uh, doing our finale breakdown. That's good. Uh, live episode February 7th, uh, one week from whenever this is getting posted, probably. But probably not one week from when you're listening to it, so just pay attention to the February 7th part. Um, we're on Facebook. Uh, if you want to follow us there, it's facebook.com slash happen. You can also email us at gmail.com, happen at gmail.com you can support us in a couple of different ways you can come and sign up at patreon to become a supporter there it's patreon.com slash blah 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 media that's b-l-a-h 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 media or you can just buy us a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com slash blah 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 we also have a website uh it's blah 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 media.com uh all of our episodes are there a convenient player is built right into the homepage. you can stream right from podbean through that and i think that's all of our socials i'm todd sullivan and i'm oren barter this has been when band things happen to good people now go read a fucking book <laughs>